Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I have just come from Europe, and particularly uh, from Great Britain. And in the last two months, as many of you may know, as you follow the news, in the wake of the Gaza operation that lasted for three weeks, literally thousands of people across the continent, but also on other continents, demonstrated vociferously in protest against Israel's actions. There were demonstrations in London, Paris, Madrid, Amsterdam, Stockholm, Athens, and other cities. In London, I saw for myself demonstrators carrying Palestinian flags and chanting, free, free Palestine, and Israel terrorists. In a march which was organized by the Stop the War Coalition. In Paris, they were chanting, We are all Palestinians. Two years earlier, during the war between Israel and Hezbollah, they were shouting, we are all Hezbollah now. In Madrid, where the largest demonstration took place, many of the protesters, primarily Arabs, were marching through the streets branding signs such as, this is not a war, but a genocide. In South Sweden, a Jewish congregation was attacked and graffiti slogans were daubed on the walls, don't subject Palestine to ethnic cleansing. In Amsterdam, the cry of the crowd was more explicit. Hamas, Hamas, Jews to the gas. That, by the way, is a chant that has long been heard in Holland at football stadiums. In Denmark, an Israeli man, in fact two Israeli men, were shot by a Palestinian, and there were instances recorded of Muslim youths who harassed Jewish employees in Copenhagen with shouts of slaughter all the Jews. Here in the United States, in Fort Lauderdale, in Florida, on the 30th of December 2008, Americans got a clear taste of the anti-Semitic virulence that has spread to the new world with protesters carrying signs saying, Nuke Israel, a rather chilling and ominous addition to the familiar repertoire of such demonstrations. That, by the way, you can view on YouTube, as I did. And when you watch the video you can also hear 
among other things, a Muslim American woman literally screaming, go back to the ovens. You need a big oven. That is what you need. In South America, there is, of course, the case of Venezuela. That is the most extreme example, although there were serious anti-Jewish incidents in Argentina and Bolivia, which broke diplomatic relations with Israel. But Venezuela is a special case because there took place an incident of an armed intrusion into a synagogue, damage to the Torah scrolls, to the prayer books, death to all, and various anti-Semitic graffiti of the kind Jews, assassins, terrorists, Venezuela is a country which since President Hugo Chavez took control has become a focal point of anti-Semitic as well as anti-Zionist and of course anti-American incitement. The anti-Semitism is visible on television radio, the print media, the internet. There are pro-government journalists in Venezuela who regularly question Israel's right to exist, who on a daily basis write about the Nazi quote-unquote state of Israel. Chavez represents in some ways a familiar phenomenon in Latin America, the populist nationalist tradition of authoritarian leaders such as Peron, the Caldillo tradition, a mixture of authoritarianism, socialism, of the Castroite kind, national populism. But what is alarming is the role that anti-Semitism plays in this mix, along with a very close relationship with Iran, perhaps the single most important focal point of state-sponsored anti-Semitism in the world today. And Venezuela is very close to the Iranian axis and to Arab states, And no doubt, anti-Semitism has become an ideological core of the general policy adopted by its leader. And this in a country which does not have an anti-Semitic tradition. Venezuela was probably, in the post-war period, the first Latin American country which became democratic. It was a country which welcomed Jews after the Holocaust. There are about 25,000 Jews who live there. They are prosperous, middle class, upper middle class, 
very successful. There was no hint, no trace of anti-Semitism there before Chavez came to power. So therefore, this particularly significant example and a warning sign of how quickly things can change and how easily Jews, even a tiny Jewish community of 25,000, can be made a scapegoat. A situation that we have seen in the past and from which we need to learn. I mentioned that Iran is a focal point of state anti-Semitism. Of course, this is uh, not necessarily a view shared by all commentators, and indeed only this morning I read an article in the New York Times which I thought was a trivialization of the situation of Iranian Jews. Uh, I won't go into that now, but uh, if somebody wants to ask about it later, about how I view the situation of the Jewish community in Iran, I'll be happy to deal with that. But Iran is part of a much wider phenomenon that in recent years I have tried to draw attention to, namely Islamic or Islamist anti-Semitism, which exists across the Arab world. And here you should note the fact that despite serious divisions in the Middle East between different countries, between the Sunni Arab states and Shiite Iran and the Shiite communities and a struggle that is going on for hegemony in the Middle East, a, Shia, a rising Shia axis, real differences, Despite that fact, despite the fact that Islam is not uniform and that there are different strands within it and more radical and less radical tendencies, nevertheless, it is a fact that anti-Semitism is one of the few forces that cement across these divisions and this has been the case for decades, and even more today, it seems as if it is one of the very few common denominators that exist in an increasingly divided, fragmented, and fractured uh, Middle East. Coming back to Europe, It is profoundly disturbing to note that in the month of January 2009, the curve of anti-Jewish incidents which took place rose dramatically in a way that has not been witnessed for the last 25 years since statistics began to be taken and in my judgment, since World War II. For example, in the United Kingdom, in January alone, there were some 200 anti-Jewish 
incidents, some violent, some less violent, which in a normal year, and the pattern has been of rising anti-Semitism since 2001, a steady pattern of increase. In one month, there was the equivalent of an already high level of anti-Semitism over six months. In France, there were over a hundred reports of violence. In Germany, surveys showed that 50% of Germans equate Israel's policies towards the Palestinians with Nazi treatment of Jews. And astonishingly, two-thirds of all Germans apparently believe that Israel is waging, quote, a war of extermination against the Palestinian people. And as I suggested earlier, in countries like Spain, the survey material, um, including that of the Anti-Defamation League, but there are other kinds of reports, including those conducted from Washington by uh, the Pew uh, organization, which show that Spanish attitudes towards uh, Jews and Israel are exceedingly hostile. I myself witnessed on a BBC World Service uh, program an interview with a Czech foreign minister, uh, the Czech Republic, is today holds the rotating European presidency, and the Czech foreign minister had had the nerve, the chutzpah, to actually say that Israel had a right to defend itself, which so enraged this BBC interviewer that he was completely beside himself with in horror at the prospect that the rotating presidency was in the hands of somebody who could think that Israel had a right to defend itself like any other nation. Well, this is only a glimpse of more recent developments, which I have analysed in a book that was mentioned to you, A Lethal Obsession. I thought long and hard about the title. I had earlier written a book uh, back in 1991 on the subject of anti-Semitism through history, which I called The Longest Hatred. I coined that term. Unfortunately, I didn't take out a patent on the use of it. Otherwise, I would now be probably a multimillionaire the number of times that this has been used without acknowledgement. Never mind. These things happen. I'm happy to have coined the term and that so many people find it to be reflective of what is happening. What can we do in the face of this swelling tide? Is there any strategy? Is there any way to deal with something that has been with us for more than two millennia that has accompanied, if I may 
presume to quote Albert Einstein, who said this in 1941. He said that anti-Semitism is the long shadow that has accompanied the Jewish people throughout its existence. He said that, interestingly enough, at the time of a visit of two famous Soviet Jews to the United States in order to raise money for the Red Army, um, Solomon Michels and Itzik Pfeffer. They met in Princeton, and they assured him that there was no Jewish question in the USSR. And um, Einstein smiled and said, well, he found that hard to believe because, and then he followed with uh, the quote that I just mentioned. It is a long shadow, and it has always been there. There have been periods where it is more latent, other periods where it explodes, and there's a steady level of anti-Semitism that Jews have learned to live with through the generations. In some countries, they are more fortunate than others. Perhaps the United States is one of the most fortunate experiences of Jews in the diaspora, but nothing is given, nothing is guaranteed. Even the United States has its own foundational elements in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Some of those came to the surface. It was not a very pleasant time for Jews in the United States. There was a level of discrimination that's difficult to believe from today's perspective. I certainly hope and wish that the present massive recession, which may indeed deepen and create a dynamic almost of revolutionary proportions, uh, that it will not bring with it any repetition. But as I say, there are no guarantees. The United States is no more immune than any other society on earth. But the current prosperity, the success, and the influence of American Jewry is an important restraining factor. And now more than ever, it will need to be felt. Whatever the price may be, as inevitably it will be, that Jews are responsible, that Jews are behind the uh, disasters uh, on Wall Street and elsewhere. Because Jews have never succeeded in combating anti-Semitism by pretending that it is not there or that it is a temporary storm which will pass. This has not proved to be a very successful strategy, uh, historically speaking. One of the difficulties that we face today is that just as the whole world has become globalized, that we live in an era of globalization and also perhaps of anti-globalization, so too anti-Semitism has become globalized more than ever before. That is the nature of the society in which we live. Thanks to the internet, for example, the kind of prejudices and racism and bigotry and anti-Semitism which might have reached relatively small communities in the past, except through efforts of mass mobilization, today at the reach 
of almost every human being on this planet who has access to a computer at the click of a button. You can access truly toxic material that you would be hard-pressed to find in earlier times. To take one illustration at random, a document such as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, one of the most devastating documents of modern, of 20th century anti-Semitism, is easy to access today. Uh, and available on any number of websites that have an interest in promoting it. So there is a cyberspace, a superhighway of hate that travels faster than ever before, just as the internet has great potential, educational potential, potential for enhancing and increasing our knowledge, so as we know it has an equally great potential to do harm and to, in fact, encourage and promote a culture of hatred. In the outside world, in the larger world, in recent years, anti-Semitism, really since the beginning of the 21st century, has been closely linked to anti-Americanism. That is relatively new, although not completely new. One can find antecedents to that as far back as the late 19th century. Nevertheless, the close connection that is felt in many societies uh, in Europe, in the Third World, certainly in Latin America, in Asia, and in the Middle East, the Hatred of America has been exacerbated in the last eight years. It didn't begin then, but it has undoubtedly increased. I am only concerned here with the effect it has had on anti-Semitism. And it seems to me that in the West there are three primary sources that link the two phenomena together and they become reinforcing of each other. On the far right, and that is a whole spectrum from neo-Nazis and white supremacists through to uh, more ultra-conservative and populist uh, right-wing movements, there's always been a strand of anti-Americanism which links with anti-Semitism. The most extreme version of that would be covered by the initials ZOG, Z-O-G, Zionist Occupied Government. The reference is to the United States. It is a Zionist Occupied Government. This is, and has been for a long time, a standard um, description used on the far right. But also on the left, we find variations of a view that America and and some other societies in the West, but especially the United States, is in the hands of 
a Jewish lobby. Of course, it's more politically correct, as we know, to call it the Zionist lobby, and that is the title of a book by two uh, professors in the academy, the American Academy, which has been widely reviewed. That, to me, is the soft end of this spectrum of a conspiracy theory which uh, essentially regards United States foreign policy as being controlled by a Jewish stroke Israeli lobby. And to some extent, we could say, looking at the levels of influence that Jews have attained in recent decades in America, certainly since the 1960s and 70s, that from an anti-Semitic point of view, and this is widely held in many parts of the world, the USA is like a Protocols of Zion fantasy come true in bright technicolor. Because, according to this view, everything of importance in American society, the Congress, the Pentagon, the banks, the media, the universities even, are deemed to be under the control of the Jews or their instruments. And this surfaces from time to time, even in this country, which is probably the least or one of the least anti-Semitic societies in the West, even in this country, it surfaces from time to time in mainstream discourse. And one of its uh, manifestations came very much to the surface in the debate over the Iraq war. And the claim that this war was undertaken by a neocon lobby, a neoconservative lobby, which was identified largely, although not exclusively, with Jews. And that it was done at the behest of or in the interest of Israel and a right-wing Israel at that. That, as you know, was a point of view and is a point of view that is held by some more or less respectable people. Let me return now to the question of Islam because it seems to me in looking at 21st century it is unmistakable, it is blindingly obvious that the driving force, the single most potent engine of anti-Semitism today, both in international affairs and certainly in the Middle East, and to some extent through a spillover effect in Europe and on this continent, has been a particularly uh, extreme form of Islamism. But its influence is not because of the extremists, but because there is a vast, far more moderate majority that allows this discourse, permits it, 
goes along with it, is complicit in it, and to some extent shares it. I have seen and follow. It's part of my job, so to speak. Not necessarily the most pleasant job in the world. It's part of my job to follow this discourse and its verbal and visual manifestations. Since I studied for many years examples of anti-Semitism in Europe and wrote about them, I have also some measures of comparison. For example, if we take just film, I consider that at least two of the productions that I've seen which originated in the Arab world, the Egyptian production, Horseman Without a Horse, from 2002, and a Syro-Libanese production called Al-Shatat, the Diaspora, films which have as their subject the Jewish conspiracy in this or that form are as bad, if not worse, than the worst of the anti-Semitic films produced by the Nazi cinema, and even including their Eviger Yuda, the Eternal Jew, which was probably the most vitriolic and vile anti-Semitic film that had been made anywhere until recently. Horseman Without a Horse... This Egyptian uh, film, I won't go into the details, but simply to say it's a dramatization in many parts, which cost a lot of money and contains um, some appalling scenes, including a ritual murder carried out by Jews in all its horrific detail. I thought that would be the lowest to which any uh, film series could descend, but in fact, it was surpassed by the Syro-Libanese uh, production. In the literature, in the, um, in the films, in the uh, preaching that is heard in the mosques of the Arab world, in the newspapers, whether they are government newspapers, whether they are opposition newspapers, it is astounding to see the extent to which the classical stereotypes of anti-Semitism, as we have known them through the ages uh, originating in Europe, are reproduced, amplified, and distributed on a mass basis across the Arab world. The Jews as ruthless exploiters, as cunning, selfish, cruel, scheming, plotting, corrupt, evil, ultimately demonic. The Jew as a satanic figure is a standard element in much Arab discourse and in Iran and a number of other uh, Muslim, non-Arab countries not even involved in any kind of conflict with Israel. Two examples, just very briefly. One is Pakistan. Approximately 170 million people live in that country, 
which is nuclearized, has nuclear weapons. In Pakistan, there are no Jews. To the best of my knowledge, not a single Jew. I don't count tourists, of course. And in Pakistan, there is a truly rabid anti-Semitism without Jews. One that is derived from Islamic sources. Part of the origin of that may be the influence of Saudi Arabia and its particularly um, harsh Wahhabite version of Islam, the enormous... uh, amounts of cash that invested there, its influence on the madrasas, on the um, educational system. But the fact is that this is a society which has no conflict, territorial or otherwise, with Israel. And we saw only a couple of months ago in the horrific uh, terrorist assault on Mumbai in India, we saw how in that assault the Chabad house was targeted, one tiny dot in a vast city of 18 million people. And the torture and the savagery with which the rabbi and his wife and other Jewish inmates of this Chabad house were murdered. This has nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict. It has nothing to do with the Palestinians. It has nothing to do with Israel's policies. But it has a great deal to do with the mindset and the ideology of jihadism. Even a jihadism which belongs to South Asia and not to the Middle East. So we're not talking here about normal, quote-unquote, prejudice. We're not talking about the kind of uh, more benign forms of anti-Semitism that Jews have lived with uh, through the ages. It's not a case of discrimination, religious, social discrimination. We're talking about fully-fledged conspiracy theories in which world jury controls and manipulates and is responsible for all the evils of our world. In the case of the Islamists, jury is seen as the main protagonist with which is engaged in a struggle that has worldwide ramifications for the very soul of Islam and its pretensions to hegemony, eventual final hegemony in the world. And the anti-Semitism which comes out of this is something that can only be compared, despite differences which are self-evident, with Nazi anti-Semitism. Why? Because it is an eliminationist anti-Semitism. Its object is to remove Jews once and for all, in this case from the entire Middle East region. You know, the Nazis had a slogan in the 1930s to make Germany 
free of Jews, Juden rein. And we can say by extrapolation that in the contemporary world, in the Middle East in particular, the objective of the Islamist movements, and they are a powerful force, is to make the Middle East Judenstadtrein, free of a Jewish state, which in effect, since this could only be accomplished through a bloody war or perhaps through a nuclear bomb, <coughs> the only way this could be accomplished is through genocide. So therefore, I think it is fair to say that this is potentially and in its implications, its logical implications, this is a genocidal anti-Semitism. It's very important to make a distinction between that which is the ultimate danger and a very real and present danger, which I explore in great detail in my book, and other varieties of anti-Semitism which are not genocidal, which are certainly... Um, uh, require energetic um, energetic opposition but do not have that implication. Let me give you one or two examples of this non-lethal anti-Semitism which I believe that you two in the United States are beginning to be confronted with and certainly will continue to be confronted with but which have already um, have already been felt in parts of Europe. In particular I would like to refer to the boycott movement. This has been uh, notably visible in the United Kingdom, the society which I know well since I was educated there and, uh, as it were, brought up in its political culture. And the United Kingdom is, as you all know, a democracy, in fact considered the mother of parliaments, a model liberal democracy. And the Jewish community there is respected, has a solid um, position, is not about to be overwhelmed by pogroms or any of the more violent manifestations of anti-Semitism that have occurred elsewhere. And yet, the climate of opinion, and I've heard this directly and felt it myself on visits there, the climate for Jews has become increasingly toxic. The boycott, or the attempted boycott, the academic boycott, but also an economic boycott, organised by a very large and quite powerful trade unions in the UK has become a regular feature in recent years. 
as indeed has another nasty manifestation that contains elements of anti-Semitism and a very powerful dose, of course, of anti-Zionism, namely the branding of Israel as an apartheid state. Actually, within a week, there will be a general worldwide celebration in about 27 cities of what is now called Israel Apartheid Week. And uh, this has spread also to North America. I believe there will be an Israel Apartheid Week here in California in at least two uh, places. One of them is Berkeley. Um, I think the other is San Francisco. The boycott movement is closely connected with Israel Apartheid Week and the assumption that Israel is an apartheid state. And because it is an apartheid state, it needs to be remorselessly attacked and isolated and ultimately dismantled, just as apartheid South Africa was through a boycott campaign that picked up pace in the 1980s and is the self-proclaimed model for the strategy of bringing down uh, Israel. And what is, um, what is particularly significant about these movements is that their originators, their um, initiators, certainly do not define themselves in any way as anti-Semitic, but on the contrary, would vehemently reject, indignantly reject, any such categorization. On the contrary, they present themselves as anti-racist. They see themselves as being in the forefront of the anti-racist struggle, and therefore they single out Israel for their attention as the ultimate form of racism in the contemporary world. We have here an interesting inversion and mutation, if you like, whereby Israel, but also by implication the Jews, and not just Jews who support Israel, but Judaism itself is increasingly portrayed, and this is especially true on the left and the liberal side of the spectrum, certainly in Europe. To some extent, I believe this is true here in some of the universities in the United States, and it's true in many other places, that Judaism, Jews and Zionism, Israel, are seen as a prototype of racism that has to be vehemently opposed. And this in turn produces, this in turn produces a backlash against Jews. For instance, in the universities where this is especially striking, Jewish students, I've seen this myself and often spoken with Jewish students who come from Britain but also from a number another other countries, they feel harassed, they feel pressured, 
They feel they have to justify their existence. They have to show what their bona fides are or whose side they are. If they don't openly dissociate themselves from Israel, if they don't join the anti-Zionist camp, they are suspect in the best of cases. And in the worst of cases, they cannot even be considered as ethical human beings. This is something relatively new. I, in the 1970s, as a student, fought a struggle along with others in the UK when I was still living there against this phenomenon when it was still in its embryonic stages. As far back as 1975, the World Union of Jewish Students, which had its headquarters in London, commissioned me and I wrote a pamphlet called The Myth of Zionist Racism in order to combat all the allegations and the charges that were made. But compared to today, we are now nearly 35 years on. And this has picked up so much momentum. It has become a consensus of every thinking, decent person. It's almost a defining characteristic of which camp you belong to. If you want to be considered a part of the left, even the democratic left, you have to declare where your stance is on this question. If you do not believe or accept that Israel is an apartheid state, that it is a violator of human rights, a serial violator, the most serious violator in the world today, then you are not okay. You do not have an entry ticket to join the camp of the right-thinking people. This, to me, is actually a curious form of left-wing McCarthyism. It's like you have, there's a loyalty test. It's a political test. And if you don't pass it, you're in serious trouble. You're likely to be harassed. Certainly if you speak up. And this is the tactic of the boycotters. Their objective is a comprehensive economic, cultural, academic boycott of Israel, of Israeli institutions, of Israeli products, and of Israeli academics. And if they had their way, people like myself and many others would not be able to come to a university in the United States and communicate and express a point of view because we would be judged a priori as complicit in a fascist, racist state engaged in ethnic cleansing, quote-unquote, and many other crimes, war crimes. And as you know, here in the University of California system, you have exactly the th same things going on, including at the University of Santa Barbara. And I won't enter into that because I'm sure there are people in this room who know better than I do exactly what is at stake. But we, I've been there before. It's not new. It's come to you a little later. And it's not going to go away. And it has to be confronted. And it's a war of ideas. There's no point in getting heavy-handed about it. There's, it. This has to be debated. It has to be thoroughly, intensely discussed. It's not a question of banning anybody 
or counter boycotts. But this is very dangerous, I would say, to the, um, to the academy. The whole idea of a boycott infringes on a fundamental principle of academic and scientific life, the universality of learning and of science, the centrality of dialogue and exchange of opinions. But what we see here is a massive politicization in the worst sense of the word and a singling out of one country, in this case, the Jewish state, the state of Israel, for an obsessive and disproportionate attention when other far more important, far more massive violations of human rights take place on a daily basis. I do not see mass demonstrations and protests by would-be boycotters of Israel against the genocide that has taken place and is continuing to take place in Darfur in the Sudan, practiced by an Arab and Muslim government. I do not see, and there weren't such protests, when uh, something similar or worse happened in Rwanda a decade ago. We don't see the protesters raising their voices when Russia um, inflicted a terrifying repression of the Chechens in Chechnya. We don't hear too much about the Chinese repression over decades, certainly not in terms of mass mobilization of, on, a, on a grassroots level against the Chinese repression in Tibet. And we could go on down the line, the mass rapes of Congolese women today, uh, uh, which have assumed a horrific proportions, have been reported in the press here and there, but they're not a subject that is going to interest anybody uh, to the point that Israel uh, evidently does. So clearly... We are not here in, in the realm of a pure, disinterested uh, concern with human rights, which would be thoroughly legitimate. And I'm not here in the capacity of Israel advocacy to try and suggest to you that Israel is an angelic state, that it is without fault, that its policy should not be criticised because it is criticized on a daily basis inside Israel, and I feel as strongly uh, very often about certain things that are done and perpetrated uh, by the Israeli government. But what I am talking about doesn't seem to me to have much to do with that. But it does have to do with the toxic side effects of anti-Zionism, which have increasingly spilled over, not in all cases, but increasingly, into a discourse that reminds me very much of anti-Semitism. It's a different kind of anti-Semitism. It's not the classic form of anti-Semitism. It's not the genocidal type of anti-Semitism that I alluded to previously, but it is nonetheless highly discriminatory against Jews, and it is something that has to be, I think, of profound concern to us all. Finally, let me say that I think there is no way that we can, we can run away 
we can escape the implications of the current resurgence of anti-Semitism. I do not believe there are any shortcuts. There are any easy solutions. I know that you in America live in a society that prides itself on and believes in problem solving. The whole of this society is based on the idea, among other things, that every problem has its solution. And that, no doubt, is reassuring, but I can't give you that reassurance in this specific case because it would go entirely against the record of history. This problem is not going to be solved in that kind of way. I believe that anti-Semitism is something that we will have to accept and live with, but we must work and work hard and energetically to neutralize. To neutralize doesn't mean to remove, to abolish. It means to try and find ways, practical as well as theoretical, in which we can diminish its toxic and its potentially genocidal effects because that is a pledge that every Jew, and in my view every non-Jew, should feel is an obligation after the Holocaust. We have, in that sense, to commit ourselves to preventing any recurrence of such a genocidal horror. And we can't take it for granted because this resurgence contains within it the potential seeds of that. And we have seen other genocides that have taken place, not on the scale of the Holocaust, but genocides nonetheless since the Second World War. This is a warning that the potential for evil, for violence, for massacre is as strong as it has ever been and we have the technological capacity today to inflict it more massively and in a much shorter time. I would also say that the struggle against anti-Semitism, contemporary anti-Semitism, cannot remain a Jewish concern, but equally Jews cannot push it aside and imagine that others will feel the motivation, the incentive, and the will to fight this struggle for them. It has to be. We have to look for some kind of a big tent that will be inclusive, that will permit Jews and non-Jews, people on the left and the right, secular people and religious people, people from the West and from the East, to see that they have a common interest in containing, containing the dangerous side effects and the immediate results of anti-Semitism. So it will require a determined and an organized effort. And in this effort, we also have to reach out to Muslims too 
despite what I have said about the centrality of Islamic anti-Semitism, or perhaps precisely because of that, we must find ways to engage what at the moment is only a minority voice, very much a minority voice, within the Islamic world. But there are such people who understand the danger of anti-Semitism for themselves as Muslims. Because I think that is a terrible indictment, a blackening, a darkening of the good name of Islam as a faith, that this stain should remain and that it should be allowed to intensify. If I were a Muslim, I would feel ashamed, deeply ashamed that something like this was permitted to go on. And therefore, we have to find ways, perhaps more creative ways, to reach out and to find a common interest. What is required in the subject is more moral clarity, political judgment, and a systematic global approach. And with that, we may have a chance, but we have to engage with this together. There is no other way. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.